What is it about Christianity uh, that was the most difficult for you to believe? What is it about the doctrines of Christian theology that is the most difficult for you to explain to non-Christians? Is it the virgin birth? Is it Jesus' resurrection? Is it Jesus' sinless life? Is it his substitutionary atonement? Is it propitiation? Is it God's omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence? Is it God's eternality and aseity? Or how about this one? Is it the Trinity, the nature and relationship of the Godhead? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. As a Christian, how did you come to understand the truths of God? How did you come to believe the basic core doctrines of our faith? Uh, this week in the Choi's household, we had some intense theological conversations uh, between my children and I. One day on the way uh, home back uh, from school, Katie asks me, where did God come from? Was God just always there? I responded, okay, Katie, how was school? <laughs> she persisted. Can we see God in heaven? No, you see Jesus in heaven. She persisted. Can we see the Holy Spirit? Then Micaiah, my second son, out of the blue in one of our car rides asks, Dad, when you die, I'll be sad a little bit. But then when I die, I'll meet you in heaven, right? He always says, right? But I said to Micaiah, but Micaiah, you have to believe in Jesus to go to heaven. Do you love Jesus? You have to love Jesus if you're going to heaven. And Micaiah responded, I do, Dad. But he asked, how do I love Jesus? <laughs> I bring up these questions for you to ponder because I wonder what hard teaching of Jesus will be so difficult for you to grasp, to own, to believe, that would cause you to ever turn away from your faith? Would it be to trust in God's sovereignty when a beloved spouse or a beloved parent dies from cancer? Would it be to trust in God's goodness when you struggle through what seems to be an endless season of singleness or infertility or marital strife? How about if the scripture teaches that marriage is between one man and one woman? What about if biblical eldership is only reserved for men, according to 1 Timothy 2, verses 12 through 14? What about if, according to the biblical qualifications, according to 1 Timothy 3, you don't qualify as an elder or a deacon? What if, as according to the Bible, Ephesians 4, spiritual life and maturity comes through life together as a corporate community rather than individually? What if according to Scripture, Matthew 16, Matthew 18, Hebrews 13, 7, 1 Timothy 5, 17, I can go on. Church membership is biblical and the church should be composed of genuinely converted, born-again believers. What if according to the Bible, according to Hebrews 10, 25, even through a global pandemic, regular church attendance is mandatory for true Christians because Christians are commanded in the Bible to gather together, so on and so forth. What hard sayings of Jesus would cause you to turn away from Jesus and abandon your faith in him entirely? Or maybe let me ask it this way, what scriptural command do you consistently ignore or undermine or minimize because you think it's too hard or too extreme or too much to accept? 
In our passage this afternoon, we read that many of Jesus' disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. In other words, there came a point in some of the disciples following Jesus, some followers of Jesus, when his teachings became too hard to accept, too hard to receive. They turned back and they stopped following him altogether. Now let me say from the start very clearly that the Bible teaches that once a person is saved, his salvation is to the end. It's the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. To name a few verses, John 10, 28, I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Romans eleven twenty nine. for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Philippians 1, 6, and I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will bring it to completion. 1 Thessalonians 5, 25, he who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. Jude one twenty four. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with his great joy. And from last Sunday, John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So then, how is it possible that the so-called disciples in our passage stopped following Jesus. And how is it possible that we see among so many of our evangelicalism in our Bible-believing churches, so many people leaving the churches never to return again? The answer is simple. They were never true disciples in the first place. They never knew true salvation in the first place. We're continuing our study through the Gospel of John in our series, In the Beginning Was the Word. And for part two of our series titled, Sayings, We will be considering the seven I am sayings of Jesus and its relevant passages in the next few months. We'll see how these passages serve the main purpose of the entire Gospel of John, which is explicitly stated in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, which says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in these books, in this book, but these, these signs and sayings are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. So for anyone here today, whether you are a true disciple or a so-called disciple on the verge of turning away. Or if some of you came here today and you know yourself to not be a Christian but you came seeking. And you came hungry for truth. I pray that these very words which were written for you would be the very words that would cause you to believe that Jesus is the Son of God this afternoon. And that by believing in him... You'll have new life, and that you'll come to know eternal life in Jesus' name. Amen? So from John chapter 6, verses 60 through 71, I want to share with you three postures of receiving Jesus' hard sayings. Three postures of receiving Jesus' hard sayings. Here's the outline so you can follow. Receive Jesus' words, number one, surrendered. From verses 60 through 63, surrendered. Point number two, desperate. Verses 64 through 69. And point number three, repentant. The last two verses, 70 and 71. Surrendered, desperate, repentant. I pray these words will be a fresh reminder of the gift of God's word to you and I as God's children. And I pray that these words will be received by you joyfully to strengthen your faith in Christ Jesus in whatever season of life you are in. So again, look with me to John chapter 6 verse 60 through 71. And as you turn there, uh, let me give you some context. Uh, Last Sunday, 
from John chapter 6, verses 22 through 59. We read about how the crowd of over 5,000, 15 to 20,000 perhaps, including uh, women and children, were fed miraculously by Jesus with just five loaves of bread and two fish. And this crowd had came seeking Jesus across the sea the next morning. But Jesus, who had fed them physically, wanted each of them uh, to know a more important lesson regarding their greater need, their spiritual nourishment. Uh, How people need to not only work for food that perishes, but to work for food that endures unto eternal life. So the crowd asked Jesus, what must we do to do the works of God? Then Jesus answers, this is the work of God. What he was saying was, it's not your work. It's not man's work. It's not your work or my work. It's God's work in order that we may believe in him whom he has sent. John six twenty nine. You see, God's work of redeeming sinful humanity was done through Jesus the Christ. And the finished work of Jesus on the cross, his perfect sacrifice, his substitutionary death, his resurrection was done on our behalf by God that whoever would believe in him may have eternal life. And Jesus says, that's the work I came to do. So all you have to do is believe. Believe. But the crowds says to Jesus, whom they just experienced a great miracle by, whom they were on the night just before fed to their fill, they, they ask Jesus, right? What sign do you do uh, that we may see and believe in you? They say, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. What work do you perform? See, this is the irony of this passage. Jesus was standing right before their eyes, but they didn't have eyes to see the truth. They didn't have ears to hear the truth. Only if they would persevere in Jesus, they would come to see the work Jesus had come to do on their behalf. Only if they had eyes to see, they'd see that Jesus is the new and greater Moses. They'd see that Jesus is the new and greater manna, the true bread from heaven. They say, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus answers, how? I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Well, how does the crowd respond? They don't believe. They grumble. They dispute Then Jesus says that even more specifically, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. What Jesus was doing was disclosing himself as the new and greater Passover lamb, whose body would be broken, whose blood would be spilt to be the scapegoat for humanity's sins, according to Leviticus 16, 7 through 10 to be the ultimate and final sacrifice for man's atonement. Furthermore, Jesus was showing himself to be our daily manna, in which we must feed and drink of daily in order to abide in him unto eternal life. How many of us, ask yourself, examine your hearts today, feel weakened by life's struggles because we simply don't feed on Jesus? Be honest today. For weeks, for months, for years, we don't feed on the manna of Jesus. And we feel exhausted Worn and depressed and discouraged, while Jesus says openly and invites all of us, feed on me, drink of me. How many so-called Christians today fall away from the faith because long before some trial comes their way, some test of faith, their faith had been slowly eroding away because they were feeding on the cheap buffet of social media and meaningless partisan debates and Twitter feeds and Instagram recommendations daily rather than feasting on the banquet of Jesus. And so we come to our passage, and lest we too 
become so hardened in our unbelief and fall away, even as we call ourselves disciples of Jesus. Even as you are here right now in this gathering of believers that you may truly hear and truly see, let's learn how we ought to receive Jesus' words. Let's learn the posture of how to listen and believe in Jesus' hard sayings in faith. So look with me now to John chapter 6, verse 60 through 71, and I encourage you to keep your Bibles open throughout the sermon and follow along as I read. John chapter 6, verse 60 through 71. It says this. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were and who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is the devil. He spoke to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. How should we receive Jesus' words? Point number one, receive Jesus' word, surrendered. Look with me to verse 60 again. It says this. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? The words that Jesus had spoken, namely that we must feed on his flesh, eat his flesh, and drink his blood in order that we can have eternal life and abide in him, was a hard pill to swallow. And rightly so, isn't it? What if you heard those words for the very first time? Jesus saying to you, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Well, that's why the attention is turned from the crowd to the disciples. You see, it's no mystery that the crowd of people that had gathered, who came for physical satisfaction, they said, give us this bread always. But when they were offered something else, what they didn't expect, something that was actually better for them, they didn't want it. They were consumers. They were seekers. They committed to nothing. So what did they do? They went away. Nobody expected anything of them. But the disciples, they were supposed to be different. Especially in the first century, the relationship between a disciple and a rabbi or the teacher was one that was well understood. It was supposed to be one of commitment. The role of the disciple was willing submission to the authority of the teacher. Now, of course, the disciples in this verse was referring to a larger number of people than just the 12 disciples who had committed themselves to following Jesus. They had seen his works, and they wanted more, uh, to learn of Jesus' teachings and his way of life. But you see, no one has a problem with the works of Jesus. No one complains about the experiences with Jesus. People love to identify themselves with the miracles, with the power and the fame of Jesus, the celebrity, the glory, the exciting things, and especially the gifts of Jesus. But when Jesus says, listen now to these words, come and sit with me and hear these sayings, that's when people started to have a problem. That's when people started to struggle. It's been a while since I worked with youth students, I think about eight years ago. 
And I remember distinctly uh, when the worship band plays exciting songs. What was the cool thing to do a couple years ago? Kids get excited and they jump up and down and they're waving their hand. I love Jesus, right? And then when the music stops and everybody sits and the preacher comes up, what happens? The students who are so excited, jumping up and down, screaming, Jesus! The preacher comes up and immediately they fall asleep. (sighs) Kind of like that. I think these disciples were similar because they were so gung-ho about Jesus' works. But when it was time to listen to Jesus' words, they simply would not hear. And these particular words were too hard for these disciples to receive. Look at verse 60 again. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? The phrase, who can listen to it here, doesn't mean what Jesus was saying was necessarily too difficult or too complex to understand. Jesus was very clear. I mean, he said it repeatedly over and over again in the passage before, didn't he? I am the bread of life, the true bread. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. Anyone there who had any kind of Jewish history would have gotten Jesus' historical references immediately. They just were not willing to accept it, you see. They were just not willing to receive it. They had no category for it. Now listen, Jesus wasn't unaware. right? He knew what he was saying would throw them into confusion. He wasn't just saying a bunch of complicating things to throw them into, into a quandary for, for no reason. You see, Jesus always has a purpose. Just as the signs that Jesus performed had a purpose, his sayings had a purpose to teach his true disciples how they can feed and feast upon himself. That was the lesson. Look at the next verse, verse 61. It says this, But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Jesus asks his disciples, Are you offended by what I said? Of course, Jesus already knew they were, in fact, offended. That's why it says Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling. What Jesus said was unnatural. What Jesus said was unreasonable, unthinkable, irrational to the natural human mind. And Jesus, without awaiting their answer, says to them in verse 62, If eating my flesh and drinking my blood is hard for you to accept, verse 62, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? What if you saw me rising up again in resurrected life? What if you saw me with your own eyes ascending back to heaven? Would you be offended then? Now, there's a lot of different views of what Jesus could have meant by that verse, 62. But I think both of what I mentioned are satisfactory. Jesus was speaking of holistically his earthly mission, his death and resurrection, and his ascension back to heaven. Jesus was saying, you are offended by what I'm saying because you don't believe who I am and what I came to do. Imagine I am truly who I am. Is anything impossible? What a piercing examination for his disciples, was it not? What a convicting test for us this afternoon. If we truly believe Jesus is the Son of God, if we truly believe that Jesus is the bread of life, if we truly believe that Jesus is the risen and ascended King, would we neglect feasting on him daily? Will we doubt his sovereignty when trouble comes our way? When difficulties come our way? Will we continually ignore his commands to make disciples of all nations? Will we neglect reading his word? Will we neglect prayer, which is the reason why as a church we're praying together this afternoon right after this service? For those who have ears to hear, listen to what Jesus says in verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life. 
The flesh is no help at all. Brothers and sisters, here's Jesus' reminder for you and me this afternoon. Even as you are sitting in church, the flesh is no help whatsoever. The flesh is no help at all. As James Montgomery Boyce says, this principle is true of our life as Christians today. It is not the external trappings of religion that blesses the soul, but rather the word of God. As it, as it is carried to our understanding by the supernatural intervention of God's Holy Spirit in our lives. This is true of any outward form of religion. Baptism is a good thing. It is commanded by God. But baptism does not save an individual. In fact, it has become a curse in some denominations where it has been practiced upon unbelievers. For it has given them the impression that all is well with their souls when they are children of wrath and under condemnation. He continues, take communion as a second example. Communion can be a blessed event. But it is also true uh, that it is observed regularly by thousands of people who have never truly committed their lives to Jesus Christ. And so it is completely, entirely ineffective. The works of the flesh profit nothing if the spirit does not give life. Bible reading is another example. So is prayer. So is church membership. These aspects of Christianity are of great value if the Holy Spirit is blessing them to us, and if we are seeking His blessings. But they can also be used in unbelieving, formalistic way, and so achieve nothing. We grow in the doctrine of Jesus only when we allow the Spirit of Jesus to interpret His words and apply them to our hearts. Dear brothers and sisters, hear these words carefully. It doesn't matter if you think you know the Bible so well. It doesn't matter if you listen to all the famous preachers on podcasts. It doesn't matter if you claim to be a prayer warrior. It doesn't matter if you show yourself to be a proper Christian all the time. Unless the Spirit of God is working in you. And the words of Jesus are living and abiding in you. Jesus says, the words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. So, what does your life show? How you intake Jesus' words daily. What does your life witness? What do other people who see you, who look at you, say about you and your faith? How does the fruit you bear, because of Jesus' words working in you by the Holy Spirit, testify of you? You can claim all you want. You love Jesus, like all those teenagers jumping up and down at at a praise concert. You can say you are a Christian all you want. But where is the Spirit? Where is the life? that reflects the supernatural doctrines of Jesus in your life, in your walk, in your everyday. See, the thing is, you can't fake spiritual life. You can't fake godly living. Just as a dead person can't pretend he's alive. The flesh is no help whatsoever. The spirit gives life. Dear family, how can you apply this lesson? If you are here this afternoon, Be prayerful as you listen. Don't just sit there like a bump on a log, waiting for the the minute James will finish speaking. Invite the Spirit of God to give you ears to hear and eyes to see the truth. Ask the Holy Spirit to convict you of areas in your heart where you are blinded and hardened by sin or by self-centeredness. Perhaps you are like the crowd who is sitting here even now, even as the very words of God are being declared. You are thinking to yourself, hmm, I'm kind of hungry. What should I eat after church? Just like the crowds. Perhaps you are like the disciples who are thinking, man, this Christian stuff is hard. 
Who can accept it? Right? This church planting stuff is woo, it's kind of hard. This small church stuff, it's really hard. This one another family healthy church stuff, it's too much pressure. It's too uncomfortable. If that's you, consider and examine your hearts. Whether you have been trying too hard with your flesh and not by the Spirit. Have you trusted God and delved in fully? Have you experienced His Spirit, His life, His joy? Can you testify of His grace working in your life? Perhaps in the busyness or the struggles of whatever is going on in your life, you have only had eyes to look at the circumstances or the problems and have failed to look at God who put the problems there and place you exactly where you should be for you to be looking beyond to look to Him, to trust Him through it, to experience His life in it exactly where you are. Can I tell you something that I've experienced? You can run from it today. You can run from it tomorrow. But I guarantee you, whatever the next thing you run into, you will run into the same exact thing. You can't run from God. God knows, as long as you are His, God knows exactly what you need, wherever you are. Receive His harsh words surrendered to Him. Yes, Lord, whatever you say, I'm here for it. I want to listen. How can we receive Jesus' hard sayings? Point number two, receive it desperately. Verses 64 through 69. Look at verses 64 through 65. It says this. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Here in these verses again, like last week's passage, is a great paradox between man's confounding unbelief and God's unrelenting compassion. Here is a clarification that you can fool man, but you can't fool God about who you are, about what you are. Your hypocrisy is not hidden from God, you see. Your sins are known by God. He knows whether you are a believer or an unbeliever. That's what verse 64 says, does it not? Now, the point is clear. Both believers and non-believers were in the presence of Jesus. Yet some believed and some did not. Some were wheat and some were weeds. Some were sheep and some were wolves. Jesus says in verse 65... And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by him, by the Father. What Jesus was saying is some are chosen, some are condemned, some are elect, some are damned, some are his, some are of the devil. It says in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They said, following this Jesus guy is too much. It's too hard. I can tell you, brothers and sisters, that throughout the centuries, many self-professing Christians have fallen away from following Jesus. Deconstructionism of faith isn't a recent phenomenon. And there are so many reasons why this happens. In recent years, the modern sexual revolution and the cultural normalization of LGBTQ has caused many to deny their faith and be numbered with the nuns, the no religious affiliation, for some, the growing political divisiveness, wokeness versus Christian nationalism in the evangelical church, and the nastiness of the so-called believers have caused many to leave the church. For some, racial tensions, 
The church's lack of unity and diversity. The church's lack of justice. The church's lack of compassion. This this church doesn't do enough. This church does too much. For some, the ongoing pandemic, the financial strains, the isolation, the stresses, the uncertainty has caused many to be absent from the church for months and abandon faith altogether. Maybe it wasn't their intention at first to do so. But they got comfortable in their discomforts. They determined for themselves what was essential, and they determined that the church wasn't. Take a second to ask yourself, why or how these disciples so easily abandoned Jesus at this particular juncture? They saw Jesus' works. Uh, They saw his miracles. They saw his power. They heard his teachings. But isn't it interesting? After when Jesus says, this is why I told you, that no one can come to me unless it is granted by him, by the Father. When Jesus presents the doctrine of election, that God chooses people, that God predestines his own children, people depart and abandon Jesus. Jesus asks, does this offend you? That I choose my people? That I choose who are mine and they persevere to the end? Does this offend you? You ask yourself, can a good God really choose for himself, determine for himself who's in and who's out? Friends, I pray you get the force of Jesus' hard saying. I pray you ask yourself the question of what these verses intend for you to ask. Are you of Jesus or are you not? Are you a believer or are you not? Are you a child of God or are you not? If not, why not? sitting here in the congregation of believers. What separates you from the person next to you? What will determine for you heaven or hell? I hope the answer to those questions are naturally answered in your mind and either causes you to rejoice and be strengthened in your faith. Thank you, Lord. Or it will have a reverse effect. We'll see how Jesus turns to the 12, his closest disciples. And he says this in verse 67. Do you want to go away as well? In other words, what was Jesus saying to his 12 disciples? Are you with me or are you not? Are you with me or are you not? Are you with us or are you not? Are you in or are you out? Jesus may ask us a similar question, brothers and sisters. Members of NCBC, are you in or are you out? Visitors, visiting, thank you for joining us today. Are you in or are you out? Jesus is asking us the same question. How can we receive Jesus' hard teaching, even if you feel somewhat inadequate, even if you feel somewhat nervous? Peter models for us how. Peter models for us how. Receive Jesus' hard invitation with desperation. That's how Peter receives it. Look at verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, To whom shall I go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. For Peter and most of the disciples, following Jesus wasn't a matter of choice. When life and death are your choices, when heaven or hell are your choices, there is only one choice. Jesus. I want to go where you go. Where you are, I want to follow. That's the only choice. When you are stuck in a place where the flesh is no help at all, 
When you are face to face with storms all around you, crashing down on you, when you are confronted by an enemy too big for you to battle with your own strength, when you are choice to heed the hard words of Jesus amid a trial in your life, you can choose to give up. Or will you choose to say, yes, Lord, come what may, because I have you. Which do you choose? I pray if you are a truly a born-again child of God, choose Jesus. Receive Jesus. Cling to his promises in desperation. Lord, I have nowhere else to go but you. You have the words of eternal life. Faced with a similar situation and many other situations like it, King David, centuries before, who came to understand God's unrelenting love in the midst of countless oppositions and personal failures, penned a similar response to Peter in Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12, where he says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed because I'm so down and depressed and Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hands shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for the darkness is as light with you. Amen? Many of you know the familiar story of Horatio Spafford, the author of the famed hymn, It Is Well. Well, Horatio Spafford was a person who knew something about finding hope in the midst of dark places, in the midst of life's unexpected challenges. You know this story, perhaps. He was once a successful attorney, a real estate investor who lost a fortune in the great Chicago fire of 1871. Around the same time, he also lost his four-year-old son to scarlet fever. So he thought, maybe, you know, to, 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 it will do some family, my family some good to take a vacation. So he sent his wife and four daughters to a ship in England, planning to join them after he finished some pressing business at home. However, while crossing the Atlantic Ocean, the ship was involved in a terrible collision and sank. And more than 200 people on that ship lost their lives, including all four of Horatio Stafford's daughters. His wife, Anna, was the only survivor who survived the tragedy. And upon arriving England, struck with grief, she sent a telegram to her husband that began, Saved alone. What shall I do? Horatio immediately set sail for England. At one point during his travel there, the captain of the ship, aware of the tragedy that struck the Stafford family, summoned Horatio uh, to tell him that they were passing over the very spot where the shipwreck had occurred, where the bodies of his dead daughters were buried beneath the ocean. Horatio immediately thought about his daughters, and instead of mourning and being sad and depressed, words of comfort and hope filled his heart and mind, and he penned the words down, and they have since become the well-beloved hymn. When peace like a river attends my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Dear beloved family, do you, like Peter, like Horatio Stafford, when the troubles of life surround, when sorrows like sea billows roll, do you receive Jesus' words with desperation, I have nowhere else to go, as if it was life or death? Do you say to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall I go? You have the words of life. And I have believed and I have come to know that you are indeed the Holy One of God. Brothers and sisters, the greatest obstacles of our lives, the most frightening enemy, our biggest common threat is not the unbearable church member who you can't stand. 
or, or your harsh boss. It's not your past. It's not your present circumstance, your financial instabilities. It's not your laziness or your lack of discipline or people not recognizing you for who you think you are. It's not this person or that person or this situation or that situation. Your most imminent danger, brothers and sisters, is God's wrath against you because of your rebellion against Him. The very one who created you and this universe, and we continue to do it over and over and over again. Well, the price for our sin, the sentence of the crimes against Him is death and judgment and punishment in eternal hell, a place of forever torment, gnashing of teeth, and forever regret and eternal dissatisfaction and pain. Hell is where those who reject God's words eternally dwell. Hell is where those who turn away from Him eternally suffers. Rightly so, because people have rejected God's solution. And they said to God, I'll live my way. I'll be my own God. I'll have it my way. But nevertheless, brothers and sisters, there's good news for you and me. Amen? It's the reason why Jesus came. And it's the reason why He showed and proved Himself to be the Holy One of God. That by His sinless and obedient life, that by His substitute death, His perfect sacrificial death on the cross for the payment and forgiveness of our sins, fulfilling every promise, fulfilling every prophecy, every word written of God, the wrath of God against sin was satisfied. That's why God raised Jesus from death on the third day, proving that Jesus was indeed Christ, the Son of God, conquering sin, Satan, and death forever. And whoever, anyone and everyone who would believe in the name of Jesus will have died with Him and be resurrected with Him to new life. And they will feast on Him daily, persevered to eternal life. Dear friend, if you are here and you are not a Christian, or if you do not know, if you're not sure that you are, do you know what brought you here? You came hungry. You came thirsty for something true, something real, something lasting. You came for food that doesn't perish, and I pray that you won't leave this place famished because Jesus says, here I am, feast on me. I pray that you will leave this place full and satisfied in Jesus. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So today, this moment, receive him in surrender. Receive him in desperation. Confess like Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Feed me. Quench my thirst. Believe him today if you're not a Christian. Trust him with your life this moment. If you want to know more about how to follow Jesus, I'll be standing at the back door. Jeremy will be standing at the outer door. Talk to us about how you can follow Jesus, how brothers and sisters can come alongside you and pray with you and pray for you to learn how to follow Jesus to the end. Talk to anyone who's smiling next to you about how you can follow Jesus. And don't leave this place today without having someone to pray with you. And dear brothers and sisters in Christ, any of you need some encouragement today? Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight and 29, he says it another way, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The word yoke there in that verse can mean the commands of Christ, the words of Christ, the sayings of Christ. And so here's an invitation. If any of you are weary and burdened this afternoon, Jesus says, take my words Believe in my promises that he knows you, that he's called you, that he's with you, that he satisfies you as you feast on him. So learn from him this afternoon. Desire more of him. Ask more from him 
and do it with your church members. Encourage others. Tell others about him, and you will find rest for your souls. Third and finally, how can we receive Jesus' words and not fall away? Point number three, receive Jesus' words in repentance. Receive Jesus' words in repentance. Look at verses 70 and 71. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is the devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. It's so poignant and interesting here that Jesus, in concluding his teaching about feeding on him, ends with the prime example, the ultimate example of a disciple turned damned reprobate. Right? He's ending this teaching, pointing out the betrayer. Why? Here's the point. This person was with Jesus. He saw Jesus' signs. He heard Jesus' sayings. And yet, could not, did not accept Jesus' teachings. Here's a powerful lesson for you and me. Here's a sharp but clear lesson for you and me. You can be a member of New Covenant Baptist Church, yet still miss it. You can be sitting here right now hearing these words, but be so blinded by your sin. For Judas... It was 30 pieces of silver. What's blinding you? How would you respond if Jesus pointed you out? Everyone here is a child of God, but you are a devil. Would you get upset? Would you turn away? Would you say, forget it, forget you, Jesus? One commentator helpfully says, in reference to this verse, Jesus never used so strong an expression about his open enemies who went about to slay him. It was a hypocrite and a false apostle whom he calls a devil. And there's nothing so wicked as a false profession. I pray you'll see the mercy of Jesus even in calling someone a devil. I pray you'll see the love of Jesus' hard words that we are deeply wicked sinners because the purpose of his truthful words are what? Are for our repentance. Do you know this isn't the first time Jesus warns Judas of his betrayal? I love Matthew's account in chapter 26, verses 24 through 25. It says this, The Son of Man goes at is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And Jesus, I love this part, Jesus said to him, you said it. You're right. You are the betrayer. Friends, Judas wasn't the only one called the devil and told it again that you're going to betray me. It was the same for Peter as well. It was the same Peter who said in verse 68, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That Peter was once called by Jesus a Satan and told that he would deny him three times. Yet Peter, unlike Judas, who sought relief from his guilt, Peter sought repentance. And Peter was forgiven by Jesus' death on the cross. And Peter was restored at the conclusion of this very gospel, the gospel of John. Brothers and sisters, the gospel of Jesus isn't about Peter as much as it is about you and me and our good work. It's about Jesus' work. It's about Jesus' words. Friends, I know of so many Christians, pastors, pastor's wives, so many who walked seemingly faithfully with the Lord for years, zealous in service to his church, passionate in the Lord. 
Then some devastating hardship came. Then some troubling circumstance came. And they no longer decided to heed the words of Jesus. The words of Jesus was too hard simply to accept. May they serve as examples to us. I pray that you and I will continue to receive his words with surrender, in desperation, understanding there is no other way but Jesus and through repentance. You know this famous quote well by Martin Luther, the well-known reformer. All of the Christian life is one of repentance. Keep feasting on Jesus. Keep surrendering to Jesus. Keep being desperate before Jesus. Keep being repentant before Jesus. And you will persevere in him who is our hope, whether in life or death. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is not a single one of us who is able, who is capable to save ourselves from our wretched sin. Father, there is not a single thing we can do on this side of the earth to protect ourselves from depression and damnation and death and and just pure discontentment living in this life. But Father, you are the sovereign Lord. You are in control over all. And Father, through those circumstances, through those situations, you caused us, your children, to look to you and only you. To whom shall we go? You have the words of life. May our confession, may our worship, may our proclamation be just that. We look to you. We turn to you. We are desperately surrendered to you. We are sorry for what we have done. We look to you. We cling to you. May that be our declaration today and forevermore that Christ is our only hope in life and death. In Jesus' name we pray.